This week's episode of Carson Sack Podcast is brought to you by Thrive Fantasy Sports. Come prop up on Thrive Fantasy this season. Thrive Fantasy is a daily fantasy sports app for player props. Thrive has eliminated the need to do countless hours of research because they only ask you about top-tier athletes in a respective sport. For example, in the NBA, you choose 10 out of the top 20 player prop options to build your lineup. If you want to do it in the MLB, the PGA, or even eSports, you choose 5 out of the top 10 player prop options to build your lineup. Each prop has a fantasy point total associated with the over-under based on its likelihood to occur. But be careful because the more points a selection is worth, the riskier it is. Rack up the most points to win a share of the prize pool. If you're using the PGA, which, I mean, why wouldn't you? It's the first major of the year this week, the PGA Championship out in Harding Park. But if you are doing the PGA, Thrive has a couple different options for you, such as they have new contests for each day of the tournaments, Thursday only, Friday only, so on and so on. So don't worry about your golfers ruining your weekend by not making the cut. Since 2018, Thrive has awarded over $1.3 million in prizes. So, I know you're thinking, hey, Carson, so what what do I do? How do I get involved in all this? Thank you for asking. So, when you go and sign up, use promo code SAC, all capital letters, that's S-A-C-K, and you'll receive an instant $20 bonus on your first deposit of $20 or more. You can download the Thrive Fantasy app, that's T-H-R-I-V-E Fantasy, on the App Store or Play Store, or by visiting their website. Sign up and prop up today. Now without further ado, hit that ish. Sorry, I knew you guys wanted to clap, but everything I'm going to say is going to be amazing. Uh, (laughs) How do you pay, man? Uh, If you don't write checks, how do you pay? Hello and welcome everyone to episode 70 of Carson Sack Podcast, where we talk balls. It's lovely to have you back from last week, keeping things rolling back-to-back weeks with a brand new episode. This one, I can assure you, is going to be much shorter than last week's hour-and-a-half-plus episode. We have a mail sack to get us started. You all did a wonderful job, once again, of sending in your questions, so thank you very much before we get into that. We're going to talk a little bit of NBA with the season and the restart already happening this past Thursday. Going to look at some headlines that have happened. I'm going to talk a smidget of NFL, a little baseball, but then we are going to hit it heavy on some PGA Championship talk. It's the first major back this week in golf. It's been oh so long since really a meaningful sporting event happened. You could really say since the Super Bowl, that was the last real meaningful event besides the um, games coming back and the golf tournaments coming back. The major first major in golf is this weekend at, at a Harding Park out in San Francisco. So going to dive pretty deep into that and looking forward to it as well. So again, before we get into everything, I do need to remind you 
Please like, rate, review, subscribe, all that other good shit on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you might be listening to this too. I'm not sure where else you are, but if you are not listening to it on one of those websites, uh, go right ahead and give it a subscribe or whatever that website offers. And also, check out Thrive Fantasy Sports as I read out in the intro of this podcast. So let's... Without further ado, let's get right into it with your all's listener questions this week on the mail sack. The first question we have from this week's mail sack comes from Aiden Carter, who asks, What is my take on the Jamal Adams trade? Absolutely love it for the Seahawks and absolutely love it for the Jets. The Jets get so much capital in return for Jamal Adams, who has proven to be a great player at the safety position. And you go back and you think about the longstanding tradition that the Seahawks have had in the last 10 years. On defense, it's been their secondary that sets the tone for that entire organization. You had Earl Thomas, Richard Sherman, and so many other countless players in the Legion of Boom back when they were going to the Super Bowl and everything like that. Their defense, and especially their secondary, comes and sets the tone for that entire team. And then you bring in a guy like Jamal Adams, who is pretty much like an Earl Thomas player, but bigger. It brings the same attitude, likes to hit, likes to get involved in the run game, runs downhill to make tackles, is good in coverage as well. You also bring him in, and you you think about when they're going to have to play the 49ers twice a year. I think that Kittle matchup with him as well as Jamal Adams on Kittle, that helps control and limit what Kittle is going to be able to do against them. Obviously, you can't stop Kittle because he is one of, if not the best tight ends in the league, but it helps with certain matchups like that. And then you look at what it just brings up to the front seven. It allows them to get more time to go after the quarterback and because of the uh, coverage that will be happening with Jamal Adams when he is back in coverage, the ability that they're going to have more time to rush the passer because the coverage is going to be so good by Jamal Adams. Uh, It's going to up their sack numbers, maybe not by a ton, but a little bit. So that's also another thing. And I also just think the overall mentality he brings is what exactly that defense needs in Seattle. Brings a bit of a swagger back. On the opposite side, the Jamal Adams trade, uh, you have the Jets. Jets get a ton of capital, and while there are times that the Jets swing and miss on front-round picks, early-round picks, you got to think, with how much they got in return and with the player they got in return, there might they might be able to find some value, some redeeming qualities um, in that trade. So it's a win for both sides. In the immediate future, obviously, I think the Seahawks are going to reap the benefits a little bit more. But going further down the line, I think the Jets and the Seahawks both won this trade. Next, we have a question from Jake Welker who asks, unbiased answer from a purely entertainment standpoint, which sport has done the best? I'm assuming he means coming back from the COVID situations and the pandemic when uh, seasons of sports teams were let go. I think if you look solely based off of how the games have been since coming back, it's hard to argue that the anybody's done better than the NBA with how they've handled the bubble situation, getting resources for the players in the bubble. So it's not 
like a prison. I mean, it's hard to say a hotel at Disneyland is like a prison, but there, I mean, I know there are factors, not being able to leave as you want, not seeing family, things like that, but the resources and the entertainment and what the NBA has done to not only provide a safe environment for the players with the bubble, but also providing outlets for them to be able to occupy their free time in between games has been remarkable. And then you look at the way that's translated to games on the court. You had a great opening night when you had the Pelicans and the Jazz. That game came down to the last seconds. Um, Then you had the Lakers and the Clippers. That game came down to a final second shot. And with this eight-game sprint, everybody is really going at it just about as hard as they can and playing about as hard as they can and leaving it all out on the court. So you're going to have these good games. If you were talking about in other aspects of how things have been handled, I personally, a big fan of the PGA, they had, after their first week at Colonial, their first tournament, they had uh, two people, I believe, test positive for COVID. And then they were able to address that and tighten up on protocols and handle it extremely well. And if you look at the names of the winners that have come back, that have happened since coming back, you have Justin Thomas, you have Daniel Berger, you have John Rom, you have Colin Morikawa. You have big name guys that are showing up and winning these tournaments in this shortened season. So that's provided a bit of a boost in, I would say, eyeballs being brought onto the sport and for a while there golf was the only sport going on so it had tons of eyeballs on it but then you have it being the only sport and you get these added um the added boost by good players and well-known name players being in contention and winning these tournaments that they've also done a great job so i would say nba and the pga have done the best um given the restarts and uh entertainment standpoint the next question we have comes from Bailey Lehman. If that is incorrect, blame your boyfriend on the pronunciation because he is the one that told me how to pronounce it. She asks, who is your favorite sports hero? Uh, growing up, super into wrestling, was major into Jeff Hardy, major into Stone Cold Steve Austin, so those two. Then I would also have to go with JT Barrett. Because, I mean, he's the best Ohio State quarterback of all time. And he just gets disrespected over and over and over again. So I would say those three, really. And then, yeah, I would just go with those three. Uh, Jeff Hardy, because he was crazy and jumped off a lot of things. Stone Cold for his uh, I don't give a F attitude. And then JT Barrett for persevering, persevering through all that hate. And then I guess you could say Jared Sollinger because... I really modeled my intramural and intermediate basketball careers after uh, what Jared Sollinger was able to do on the basketball court and how he was able, from his freshman year to sophomore year, take that leap and step back behind the arc and really put on a shooting display. That really was what I looked up to and modeled my career after when I was playing basketball. Speaking of Bailey's boyfriend, we have a first-time, long-time coming up now. From Trent Rivellette, who asked, has Lewis Hamilton done enough to dethrone Michael Schumacher as the F1 go? First off, before we get into that, I do need to speak a little bit about my newfound F1 Formula One driving fandom. Um, 
You need to go out of your way and watch Drive to Survive on Netflix. Just a incredible do- documentary, um, episodic series. Ten of them dating back to the 2018 Formula One season. The 2019 season is episode two, and it is fantastic. It is appointment viewing. I am certainly not into racing such as NASCAR, IndyCar. I can respect and understand NASCAR. I'm totally out on. So when I first came across this, I thought, well, this is definitely not going to be for me. Then you get into it. You see how each individual team, like Mercedes, Red Bull, Renault, McLaren, Williams, Haas, um, all these different teams are run basically like their own sports franchise, like their own sports team. And you have teams like a Mercedes putting half a billion dollars in and just dominating the sport. And to see how fast these guys go and how much money and how much drama there is regarding around this sport and the drivers and the decisions they make. And the personalities with Daniel Ricciardo, Max Verstappen, Lewis Hamilton, the quiet assassin that he is on the track. It is, I cannot begin to tell you how exciting and fun it is to be a fan of this. And we had a great race this past week at Silverstone. You have Max Verstappen pitting in the final lap right before Lewis Hamilton's tire just explodes. And Lewis Hamilton wins the race on a exploded tire that he has to manage to get through in the final three-fourths of a final lap. And you hear how far back Verstappen is over the radio of Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes. Oh, he's he's 10 back. He's 8 back. You get, you, they count down just how close. And then you look at Verstappen this past week and the decision that they make to pit him before. It's just the drama, everything. I cannot encourage you enough to try and sit down and watch that documentary and then translate that to some fandom of Formula One racing. But to get back to your question, Trent, um, let's see. Schumacher was driver titles. He has seven victories. He has 91 pole positions. He's got 68 podiums, 155. So on the opposite end of that, in 254 total races, Lewis Hamilton has six driver's titles, 87 victories, 91 pole positions, 154 podiums, and total points, 3,519. So, we look at that, and you got to see, driver's titles, uh, Schumacher has it right now. Victories as well, he has it right now, but in a much fewer races, Hamilton has been able to get six of his own compared to Schumacher seven. Victories, you have 87 for Hamilton, 91 for Schumacher, I think... By the end of this year, you could be seeing Hamilton eclipse him in that. Um, ultimately, to me, those two come down to those are the two biggest ones. Podiums um, for Hamilton, you have 154. For Schumacher, you have 155. To me, he doesn't pass him yet. I think when he gets to that seventh driver's title, um, that's when Lewis Hamilton really submits his place as, hey, maybe I am the GOAT driver of all time. In my opinion, in my very short fandom, he is the GOAT. I love rooting for him. But I cannot, without having that seventh driver title, which he can easily get this year, um, Verstappen is really his main competition, and he is pushing him as well. But without that seventh driver's title, I cannot, in good conscience, put him up there with Schumacher. So there's my answer.
The next question comes from Jay Bentley, who asks, what are your thoughts on the Reds so far? Reds have been a disappointment so far, Jay. The bats have not been what they needed to be. Uh, in certain games, they have been there when they came back against the Cubs. Uh, that eight-run deficit, and they were able to clear that, but weren't able to close it out with a victory because Joey Votto lacks a clutch gene, it seems like. The pitching has been okay at times, but overall, they are a bit of a disappointment. They were a bit of a dark horse from a couple uh, MLB analysts in the NL Central division, but so far this year, not living up to their potential, I will say. Then Matthew Ewells comes in with a question with, with Louisville City starting off 1-3 and three for the season. Do you see them turning it around and making a run for the championship once again? 1-3 for Louisville FC. I just sit and I shake my head. You start off with this new stadium, all this taxpayer money going into it, and what do you do, Louisville FC? You come out 1-3. and three. In all seriousness, I do not know enough about Lou City. Um, I'm a very distant supporter. I wish them nothing but the best, and I hope for the great city of Louisville they are able to turn it around this season, salvage the season, get some points, make the playoffs so they can make a run for the championship, as Jules put once again. Now we look ahead, and we have a question from Addy Miners who asks, what is my take on the Pac-12 players requesting all that stuff in order to play this season? So for people not knowing what that is referring to, there is a group of about 100 players, and they had a group me and 12 players, one from each school except Colorado, came together and put together this list of, you could say, demands that they are looking for and able to play this season. Um, a lot of the demands are pretty smart. So just to rattle off a few, um, they're requesting medical insurance for six years after college. They are asking for immediate eligibility for transfers, which the NCAA is expected to pass legislation for next year. They are looking for a creation of a Pac-12 Black College Athlete Summit. Um, no reason not to do that. And then they are also asking schools... They are asking them to prohibit schools from requiring the players to sign waivers that eliminate COVID-19 liability. And then they would like to divert 2% of conference revenue to support financial aid for low-income black students and community initiatives. Again, all of these are just great ideas. Um, the players' demands include a redaction of excessive spending on facilities and the salaries of coaches and conference leaders. And then they would also like the Pac-12 to address racial injustice by forming a civic engagement task force and a Pac-12 Black College Athlete Summit. Um, again, all of these are great ideas, and they also talk about unionizing, which I think that you do sort of come into a little bit under fire with that because if there is a union, you are, you can be you can still be cut or your scholarship can be pulled now under these circumstances, really. I believe, but then when you become a union, you become an employee, and that's when things get a little um, dicey. I have no real issues with what they are asking for. It seems very doable for them to do. They are all good ideas. They all further um, the progression that they want to see. They're well-thought-out ideas. They are going to be beneficial to not only them, but also um, – 
this season and down the line and for future athletes and for future incoming just students from low-income families um, in one of their aspects that they're asking. So I have no issue with what they're asking for. It's very progressive and it's very um, – what's the word I'm looking for? It's very uh, intuitive. That's the word I'm looking for. It's very intuitive of them to take this initiative and make these demands and be able to have some sort of system in place to help not only themselves but the people that and athletes that are become for them in years later on. Our next question comes from Christina Barone, a frequent flyer here on the mail sack. She asks, fuck, Mary kill, tin roof margs, me, golfing. I am going to 100%, I'm going to kill tin roof margs. That is difficult. I understand for myself and probably you as well if I did do that because nothing I looked forward to more than in the tin roof mark. A frozen mark from tin roof, delicious. I cannot express it enough. But there are other places to get margaritas, and I'm sure I could find a decent, decently good one that could replace the massive hole in my life that tin roof margs would be gone with if I were to kill it. Then we come to fucking and marrying, golfing or you. And to not get in trouble, I am going to marry you and I'm going to fuck golfing because I love golf and marrying you seems like the lesser of two evils here. So I'm going to do, that's my answer and I am sticking to it 100%. Our next question comes from another frequent asker on the mail sack. We have Paul Marino who asks, how do teams, NFL teams, expect them not get COVID if they are not monitoring where they're going when not practicing. Again, there is real no real answer for this. It's going to be extremely difficult to have any sort of monitoring without a bubble about what players are doing. We've seen how poorly that's worked in the MLB, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later on when it gets to the MLB part of this. But I think the NFL needs to do something to address this because – they are. They have to see how poorly this is working in the MLB, and they got to do something to address it because the MLB right now is on the verge of not even having a season. Uh, then she asked, how much money will the NFL lose without fans? The NFL money is going to take a hit without uh, and, uh, the fans in attendance, but you got to think with the amount of merchandise they're going to be able to sell and the ads they're going to be able to sell with everybody having to watch on TV. Those numbers are going to go up. So I, they're going to take a hit, but not as much as you think. She also asked, do you think tallness is a real factor for quarterbacks or is that just an extra? Tallness certainly helps. You can look at John Elway. You can look at Peyton Manning. You can look at Tom Brady. You can look at a ton of other successful quarterbacks. But you can also look at Super Bowl winning quarterbacks like Steve Young like a Drew Brees, like a Russell Wilson, who guys that are technically undersized by NFL standards for the quarterback position, but still go on and have hugely successful careers. It's not a end-all be-all. It's not a trait that is going to be um, indicative of guaranteed success, but it certainly does not help to have a few extra inches in height to see over your line and whatnot. 
Shosko asks, do you think there would be a possibility of COVID getting so bad during the season that they will quit midseason, or is the NFL too greedy? There certainly is a possibility, and I am extremely concerned that the season will get off to a start, and around week four, there's going to be some pop-ups of cases, and then around week eight, um, there's going to be just more, and how well they handle it, and how they're going to be able to limit the spread of COVID if a team gets it, not a whole team, but if a group of players on a team gets it, it's extremely concerning. I'm, I am extremely worried. I could a hundred percent see them just being under so much pressure from the outside that, and also within the uh, league itself with their players. And I would hope coaches and owners wanting to protect their players, health and safety along with their families, calling the NFL that if it does get bad enough that they would need to shut it down and maybe take a month or two off and reassess their protocols and what they can do to help limit the spread of COVID if it, if it does become an issue. Um, you got to think that's going to happen because at the end of the day, it's people's lives and you can't put a price tag on a person's life. And hopefully you would think the NFL wouldn't be so just – greedy and money hungry that they would try and put these people at risk like they would if there was a COVID outbreak and a group of players on different teams were to get it and be able to spread that and then just open up the floodgates for what would be able to happen. Next, we have a back-to-back week sender in of questions. Uh, we have Caitlin Zinsmeister who asked, she's got a couple this week. She asked the first one, if I was on death row, what would my last meal be? Very simple. I think I've got this question before, but I am, once again, thrilled to answer it. We're going to do wings, we're going to do french fries, we're going to do Dr. Pepper, and we're going to do blue cheese. Those have to be there. If they're not, I, I'm, I send it back. I will not be in attendance for my last meal if those are not on the table. Then I would also like to have spaghetti and meatballs, preferably my mother's, grandmother's recipe. Um, I love Love that. Could not have a final meal without that there as well. I would also, I'm going to say I would like some Rocky Road. Let's do some beer cheese. And then I would like to do Longhorns Calamari with their little sweet Thai chili sauce. That w- I think that would just be exquisite. I think that is my final meal. Then she also asked if I... I could only listen to one song for the rest of my life. What would it be? I struggle with this all the time where I come across a song that maybe I haven't given enough appreciation to um, in a while. And I think, you know, that this is a top 10 song ever for me. And I will do that probably two or three times a month where I think this is a top 10 song. So you do the math on that. That's 36 songs a year where I'm like this. This is a top 10 song. Obviously, I have an excess of 26 songs. There can't be 36 top 10 songs. It's just impossible. But I always steadfast say that I think my favorite song of all time, just because you can play it in any setting, no one is ever going to say, hey, turn that off. That's a bad song. And when you listen to it, it can get you excited. But then when you really listen to it and listen to the lyrics and look at the lyrics, you're like, fuck. This song's got some meaning behind it as well. So I think if I could only listen to one song for the rest of my life, I'm going to have to pick Hey Ya by Outkast. 
then Caitlin also asks, what's the quality you appreciate most in people? Um, I appreciate people that are on time. So people that have punctuality. That's a big thing for me. And then if I was a cult leader, what would your cult be about? Uh, who the fuck knows? Um, let's see. I think it would have to be about... This is also... I'd like to make this extremely clear right off the bat. This is not a killing cult. We are not going to have a Jonestown round two. Um, this is more of a community of in, of invitation. If you share my same beliefs... You are more than welcome to come and join and live in my community in this cult. You certainly do not. You are free to leave whenever you want, and I mean that. If your views or opinions change or you think I am leading it incorrectly. I think we need to base it right around blue cheese being better than ranch. I think we need to also, you have to have a love of wrestling. I think those two are really going to go um, hand in hand. I think Ohio State football. Um, and Ohio State Athletics, but football taking a hierarchy needs to come in to play. And then to piggyback off that, I think you have to have some gripes about the attendance of Ohio State basketball. Those are my four big key issues in my cult. Blue cheese better than ranch. You got to love wrestling. You have to have an appreciation and love for Ohio State Athletics. And you also have to be a little pissed off year in and year out about the attendance numbers for Ohio State basketball. A roller coaster of questions this week from Caitlin. Thank you very much for sending that in. And then our final question comes from Patrick Fulton, who says, Hello, Mr. Karras, first time question asker, long time listener. Can you give me a sleeper pick or two for the PGA this week? I'm trying to really cash in on your Thrive Fantasy bonus code, which, just a friendly reminder, it's SAC. All capitals, you sign up, deposit $20 or more, you get an extra $20 bonus. Um, I'll hang up and listen, he says. Some sleepers this week for the PGA Championship. Pat, I'm absolutely so glad you asked this because I'm not going to get into my full breakdown and everything right now, but... A lot of people are going to throw out Justin Thomas, um, Brooks Kepka coming off a good week. He had some guys I am just excited to watch and see how they're going to navigate around this course. Tony Finau, he's sitting at 50 to 1. I'm, if, I understand Adam Scott has taken a few, he's taken a few months off. This is going to be his first tournament back from the since the restart has happened, but I'm interested to see how he's going to get the ball around. I think Mark Leishman, how well he's played in tournaments so far this year with his ball striking ability. Um, I also would like to take a look at Max Homa. And then going down, Max Homa, you're sitting at uh, 125 to 1, but then a guy that's just been consistently good um, around that top 30 range all year, uh, Joel Damon. Love the way he's been playing since the restart. So those are just some guys to take a look at. Um, and then if you want to go all the way down to um, around the 200 range, uh, Troy Merritt coming off. He played consistently well. He struggled down the stretch at the Barracuda last week but was in contention there. In their Stableford scoring format, I am – just that's a flyer for me. Troy Merritt at two hundred and fifty to at two hundred to one. Uh, that's a long shot value pick for me. 
that is going to do it for the mail sack this week. I appreciate everyone, as always, sending in your questions. You make all that segment possible, all of you do. So thank you very much for doing so. I now want to shift focus a little bit to the NBA with some talking points about that. Uh, first off, I want to give a hats off to Adam Silver and the entire NBA for how well they have handled the restart and how well they've handled the bubble. The time and preparation and the thought process and the countless hours of thinking and just ideas they probably had to come up with for what ifs regarding that has been, had to be incredible. Like, just it goes way over my head. I could not imagine being in a meeting and deciding all of what they've probably had to do. And we, as viewers of the sport, have been rewarded so far with great NBA games and zero positive tests for COVID. So hats off to them. The big news, you got to see the Lakers wrapping up the one seed in the Western Conference. They beat the Clippers opening night. They struggle against the Raptors their second game, and then they beat the Jazz for the season sweep 4-0 against them. Anthony Davis putting up 42 points on a year-in, year-out perennial defensive player of the year candidate, Rudy Gobert. you got to think that now the Lakers are really going to limit LeBron in AD's minutes, scale that back, see what some other players, if they can get in the groove before the playoffs start. Um, Love the job that LeBron and Vogel has done as coach coming in and being able to handle the pressure, the personalities there in LA with LeBron and the media trying to create all the storylines that, Oh, LeBron's, if this is, he's really pulling all the strings and everything. So hats off to them as well. Um, another storyline to look at, you have Zion on the Pelicans still vying for that eight, eight seed. They're able to get a big win last night against the Grizzlies, but Zion playing a combined 29 minutes in his first two games, I get you have to think long term with Zion, but I mean it's eight games, guys. You gotta go out there and just let him play. I mean he played 25 minutes yesterday in the win against the Grizzlies and was able to come up late down the stretch. There were times he looked a little winded, but I mean that happens. It's he's a bigger guy, and I think there's so much just false narratives put around him being just so out of shape and everything. He's an athlete and he trains and he, I get with fatigue comes injuries and things like that, but eight games to make the playoffs, you got to play him more. And then you have Alvin Gentry, who the coach there working with the medical staff. And then you have the PR team who puts out all these things, hyping up Zion and you only have them for 14 and 15 minutes respectively in the first two games. Um, it's hard. You just need to get on the same page as an organization so you can get out there and control the narrative a little bit. But I think now with them having three games and only five games left and it really getting to be crunch time, you're going to see Zion out there a lot more, especially in crucial minutes, because he's able to change and affect the game in so many ways. Then another storyline from the NBA restart, the Rockets coming out and beating the Mavericks in their first game, and then beating the Bucks as well. You have the James Harden, Giannis beef that goes back and forth, dating all the way back to the All-Star game when basically down the stretch, the, the decision for Giannis as the team captain was just give the ball to whoever James Harden is guarding because he's not good on defense. James Harden was able to stifle Giannis a little bit on defense, 
this past game when they played. The Rockets have looked good. The third seed is really theirs for the taking. The Clippers at times have struggled. They were able to rebound well from their loss to the Lakers on opening night and really just beat the shit out of the Pelicans in the second game that the Clippers played. Um, Kawhi, you talk about the Clippers. I have to mention Kawhi and how well he has been playing opening night. He had a fantastic game and really kept them in that game despite the not them not having Montrez and Lou Williams who respectively can go out and get you about 15 to 20 points a night on a good night for both of them. But the Rockets have a clear-cut path to the 3 seed, and I think that's very important for them, seeding-wise. But then you look at the Nuggets as well, who if Jamal Murray, he's like, I think he had a bit of a foot issue or something like that that helped out on yesterday's game. But Michael Porter Jr., who, again, huge fan of Michael Porter Jr., but I absolutely, somebody needs to take his Snapchat away from him. God. Um, really hard to like a guy who says things like that, that he did. But... His development and how well, if he can continue to develop, is going to be a very tough matchup for teams in the playoffs because of his size and his speed and his um, versatility and ways that he can score. If you can add that to what Jamal Murray and Jokic do as well, that's a very key thing. And then in the East, really, uh, the Raptors have been, I don't want to say surprising, because... You have to always talk about the loss of Kawhi, leaving them for the Clippers. But you have so many good players that are still on that team. I mean, Kyle Lowry was able to beat the Lakers in their second game, and he really went off. He had a better stat line pretty much by himself than what LeBron and AD had combined. Um, Siakam, his continued development. Uh, Van Vliet, his continued development. He had, I think, 35, 36 points their last game. They have looked like so far in the first couple games as the clear-cut best team out of the East. So those are really the NBA storylines I wanted to talk about and address. I've done that, so now we can really just move on to... I'll talk a little bit about the NFL because there's not really much going on there. Teams have been reporting to camp. Players have been put on the COVID-19 list um, back and forth. But what I just really want to address about the NFL, which I think is kind of shitty... The deadline for players to opt out, I believe, is Thursday. Just what? The season is going to start on September 10th. So, I mean, it's going to be the 6th. So about a month away. So much can change in a month when it comes to this pandemic and what, like, upticks in cases can happen. And you're asking these guys to make such a huge decision that is going to affect them and their families and so many dominoes that could fall. You're asking them to make it a month when so many things can change. I think the NFL needs to really adjust that and also needs to, as I mentioned before in Paul Marino's question, they need to address something about protocols and everything. I understand they're doing testing every day. They're help uh, sanitizing everything. There's a video going around of Broncos players walking through a sanitizer type thing before they go out and practice. That's great. I love that. But you look at what some MLB teams are going through, like the Marlins. And I guess this will combine with the Marlins, what, what, what I wanted my MLB talk to be. 
the Marlins having 14 guys test positive. The Cardinals having an outbreak of Corona within their own team. Them having to cancel games and move games around and series around. And just how that domino effect for one team is going to affect so many other um, organizations. The MLB has done it. I believe Manford and the MLB has done a absolutely dog shit job in how they're trying to really control and limit um, COVID cases. And the NFL needs to, I don't know how they're going to do it. Again, that's above my pay grade. Um, somebody else is going to have to do that. But they've got to address what players are doing in their free time. Obviously, you can't say, hey, you can't go out to eat. Hey, you can't go out to clubs, but for Christ's sakes, have some just foresight and some accountability and just don't be an idiot about it. And I get Derek Jeter comes out and says the Marlins players that all got it. None of them were um, out and going and going to clubs, everything. Well, you said one, they got it from going to get milk, um, going home and visiting family and then going out to restaurants. I, I don't know if that's a cover up. Um, by Derek Jeter, who is just trying to do what he can to make sure his players don't uh, face the wrath of the media and the fans and everything like that. But it's hard to believe that if you're following the protocols of wearing masks and just doing what you're supposed to, that you're going to have 14 guys show up on a team and test positive. So, again, coming back to the NFL original discussion and encompassing the MLB talk I wanted to get to I think it's absolute bullshit that players are being forced to make a decision by Thursday on whether they need to opt out and then I think the NFL needs to take a long look and really try and decide and set up some protocols for how they're going to be able to limit the external factors and the compounding factors that are going to lead to potential outbreaks and COVID cases within teams that are just going to set massive domino effect um, within the league if it were to happen. So now that all those have really taken care of themselves, we've gotten to the NBA, the NFL, the MLB. I would like to now talk a little bit about the first major, the PGA Championship, that's going to be taking place at Harding Park this weekend um, in golf. You have Justin Thomas coming off the victory in Memphis at the WGC, the St. Jude's, reclaiming the number one ranking in the official World Golf Rankings. He's going to be a hot pick. It's hard not to. So just a little background and a bit of a tidbit fun fact about this. So, and Rory, in 2014, started Sunday at Firestone, three back. Firestone was the tournament before the PGA Championship in 2014. We now fast forward six years to Justin Thomas in 2020. He started Sunday in Memphis, four back. Rory McIlroy in 2014 shot 66, one by two. Justin Thomas shot 65, one by three. Now, here's where things get a little bit coincidental. Rory in 2014 with that victory moved to the world number one. Number one In 2020, Justin Thomas with his victory last week moved to world number one. And to cap it off, they are both seeking their second PGA Championship the following week. 
It's going to be hard to pick Justin Thomas because since the restart all year, he's been playing very consistently good golf. Almost won at Colonial in the first tournament back. Then he had another near miss um, at the workday when Colin Morikawa and him went back and forth. JT sort of blew it in those last couple holes with his driving. Um, that's a bit of a concern to me is his misses um, come at very inopportune times. You look last week on, I believe, the 15th hole when he blew it left and he got an incredible bounce and was able to get that up and down for birdie. But then the following hole, the 16, the par 5 there in Memphis, he blows it so far right, luckily, that he has a gap and an opening and he's able to pitch it out, lay up, and then control his third shot beautifully, spins it back, has it to a tap-in birdie range. So, the it's not even a big right miss or left miss. It's just a big miss that at times down the stretch it's lurking and it's very concerning. Um, another powerful guy that is going to garner a lot of attention and picks um, is Bryson DeChambeau this year. Just some background information uh, with DeChambeau in majors. Bryson has broken par in just 8 out of 44 rounds in majors. He's been outside the top 10 following just 3 of those rounds and has combined 69 over par in 14 majors, finishing under par in only one major, the 2019 Masters. His best finish in a major came T15 at the 2016 U.S. Open. Bryson has been, it's hard to really talk about golf since the restart without mentioning Bryson at some point. The mass he's been able to put on and really the distance he's been able to gain through the mass, uh, the mad scientist-like way he went about it, it worked. What is concerning with me with Bryson is he is so volatile to have a blow-up at any point. You can go back to the memorial when he was safely inside the cut line and then he goes and shoots on one of the holes and what also concerns me about Bryson is his iron play it's extremely frustrating and just as a fan I can't imagine how frustrating it is for him to he goes out and he puts these balls 350 yards plus down the fairways and he's looking at most of the time sub 150 yard shots in and his just ability to control spin and his touch around the greens with his iron play has been pretty brutal. It's not been great with the exception of really the rocket mortgage when he did win up in Detroit. Those have all been besides that they've been shaky at best most weeks and his putting has been pretty hit or miss as well with the exception of the rocket mortgage. Now just to talk a little bit more about the course um, when Harding Park um, since 2015, that's when, um, the last stroke play event happened at Harding Park. The hardest fairways hit on the PGA Tour in 20, in, excuse me, 2005, not 2015. That was the last stroke play event that was to happen at Harding Park. So over 15 years, but still pretty indicative of how they're able to set us up for difficulty. Um, the hardest fairways to hit Quail Hollow, you had a 47.1% rate. Harding Park, where the tournament's going to be this year, 48.6 was the uh, percentage that players were hitting the fairway. And just coming off of what I've seen so far, um, 
and what I've read, the first impressions on Harding Park, how they're going to set it up, um, 7,200 yards, um, it's going to play more, it's going to play longer than that. About 7,600 yards is what it's going to feel like because it's going to be cold, there's going to be breeze. The rough, extremely brutal. Um, in some cases, unplayable. They've been saying it's spotty, so it's thicker in some areas than it is in others. Um, it's been around, I believe, like a three or three and a half in the height of it, and that was on Monday. This is all information on Monday, so I apologize. But to have it like that, it's really going to reward the dri- the drivers of the golf ball that are going to be able to hit straight, but it also really sets up for guys that if they're going to hit it a far way and miss and not be as accurate with where they're putting the ball in the fairway off the tee, I would much rather have a 150, 125-yard shot from this rough and be able to hit it high with a pitching wedge or a gap wedge or a degree wedge than have to be back in the fairway and have to hit a 6 or 7 or 5 iron 200-plus yards into um, these greens that are very complex. Um, They're not too small, but they do have some... Uh, a bit of nuance to them that it's going to be a lot easier and a lot more enjoyable to be hitting, obviously, from 150 yards in, uh, being able to get the the ball high up in the air rather than coming from 200 or 175 yards in with long irons and having to control the trajectory and things like that. Um, Continuing on, just some... Brief information about how to be able to watch the PJ Championship Thursday and Friday from 10 to 4 p.m. ESPN Plus and 4 to 10 p.m. It's going to be on ESPN. And then 11 to 1 p.m. ESPN Plus on Saturday, 1 to 4 p.m. ESPN, and then 4 to 10 p.m. on CBS. And then the all-important Sunday, you have 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. ESPN Plus, 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. ESPN, and then... 3 p.m. to 9 p.m. You have CBS. Also, we need to talk about the weather a little bit. Um, Tuesday and Wednesday, the days leading up to it, not much uh, chance of rain. Um, going to be cold, though, this week, and I do need to harp on this. It's going to be 65, 54, 64, 54, 66, 54, 66, 55, with clouds the first two days and mostly sunny the next two. Um, just to get off topic and goof around a little bit, I cannot begin to describe my anticipation for the fits these guys are going to be able to pull off. I don't think there are. there's a sport where the swag and the coolness factor comes off better than when it is a little chilly. The golfers are allowed to pull out some pullovers, some sweaters, the long pants, oh my, it's going to pop. I cannot wait to see uh, what the outfits are going to be like. It's a bit of a lookbook into a preview of what the clothing companies within golf are going to be dropping this year as well. I cannot wait. I'm excited to see what Brooks is going to be in because he, I like his style. Tiger with really having Nike sort of tailored to what he wants and has his own little sort of line within uh, Nike Golf, then John Rahm with Adidas, Justin Thomas with Polo, how well they're going to look. I cannot begin to wait to see how those are going to look. But again, we can now talk 
about the weather and how this is going to impact one specific player. Uh, a lot uh, is made to do about Tiger Woods and how he handles hot weather and cold weather and how that gets him to activate his back and how he's feeling to deal with soreness and tightness and all this other bullshit. I think Tiger got a great draw with the tee time so far this week. Um, I believe he's going to go off at 11.55 Eastern time, so that's 8 o'clock uh, Western, West Coast time. And then he's going. that's on Thursday. Friday he's going to flip in and be able to go out in the afternoon. So he's going to get a bit more rest, a bit more time to recover. That's going to be huge for him. Uh, at times last year, he was one of the best drivers of the golf ball. But so far this year hasn't been all that great. His putting has been spotty, but especially at the Memorial where, of course, he knows so well he wasn't able to control um, the speed or the line as well as he should have been able to given his success there. That's a little concerning, but you can never count Tiger Woods out at a major. Uh, A lot of people have made the comparison that the setup and how things are going to play is going to be a lot like Beth Page Black last year. That was a bit of a bomber's paradise, and Tiger can still hit the bar far, ball far, but where Tiger is going to always excel because he's probably the best at it ever is his iron play, his mid-iron play and his second shot ability, um, shaping balls into greens and using greens contours and their slopes and getting it to feed back towards the hole. It's an art to watch Tiger Woods do that. And this week, it sort of neutralizes that ability where he can just really put on a showcase because of being able, the guys being able to hit it further um, and have the shorter distances in, especially if you're not hitting it down your crack line and you're ending up in the rough. It's going to put a lot of tear, wear and tear on Tiger's body, trying to force it, not force it, but power it out of that rough that is apparently so thick and dense. But I'm I'm certainly not counting Tiger Woods out of this. I think the draw for him, tee time-wise, and his ability, given him more ability to recover and whatnot, I love that for him. I think that sets up well for him. But I, he's not near the top of my list for guys that I'm going to be expecting to win a guy that is going to be on a lot of people's minds though to win on uh, the two-time defending champion Brooks Kepka, who had a good showing last week at the WGC in Memphis all the way up till the final hole where he put one in the water but needed a birdie on that final hole to tie JT Justin Thomas to force a playoff I went back back and forth through each day last week with Brooks I Struggled with thinking he's really he's firmly back, or that he's gonna do just enough this week to remind people, hey, like when I'm fucking on and I give a shit, I'm one of if not the best golfers on the tour. And I went back and forth and struggled which how I was gonna think about this and approach this, and. I was really leaning towards the second option where when I'm on and I give a shit, I, I'm the best. Like I, no one's better than me. I have one of the most complete games, but you look at it. He struggled a little bit with putting last week, but when he needed things to happen the most, um, the bomb he hit on 17 to pull within one going at 18 to JT, he got it. But 
the hole before that, he missed a about an eight to nine footer for par uh, on 16. That there you go. It shows he struggles at times, but also in big moments he can still turn it on. What made me change my mind and outlook about Brooks for this week was he still mentioned that his knee was still bothering that him. I get it didn't really seem like it bothered him that much last week, but this week I, I just it's it's hard for me to bet against Brooks, but I think with that injury, the lack of consistency he showed this year, it's going to be hard for me to really say and come out and say Brooks Brooks is going to win this golf tournament. So, and I get he well he has a ton of chance and opportunity and the potential to come out. And it's not like he's listening to this, but the he has all the potential in the world to come out and just put on another ball striking display and driving display like he did at Beth Page last year where he accrued such a big lead going into the final day that when he was shaky at times and came back to the field a little bit, it didn't even fucking matter because he had such a big lead and he could just come out, flip the birds on Sunday and have such a wide lead and say, yeah, I'm still the shit when I want to be. But I just think the injury to the knee uh, and his lack of consistency all the year is going to is what's going to keep him from winning. I think he can still have a great week and have a good showing, but I I just don't think he's going to win. Um, I just want to go through a couple other players who have some good odds going into the week. Rory McIlroy is at fourteen to one. I'm out on Rory winning this week. He has shown no signs of consistency putting back-to-back weeks together let alone back-to-back good rounds together so I'm out on him John Rahm I believe his driving ability um, his accuracy and his distance is going to play well here it's going to be about staying hot with the putter after winning at the memorial a couple weeks he didn't follow it up that well with a good uh, performance in the WGC so um, I'm not all the way on him Dustin Johnson he cut the beard I'm out on him Xander Schauffele is a guy that I am going to monitor extremely close this week. He's had a bit of a consistency so far this year to get off to a bit of a poor start on Thursday, battle back Friday, make the cut um, or be around the cut line, and then go off very quietly on the weekend and get himself some backdoor top 20s, in some cases backdoor top 10s, and you just don't really hear about it. I like his ability to drive the ball this week. Um, I like his ability with his irons and around the greens and his stroke gains around the greens. Recently, I've liked that. And his putting, uh, at times when he's hot, he is one of the best putters on the tour. So I really like Xander this week. Tiger, we already talked about him. I'm also into Patrick Cantley this week at 24-1 to 1 for basically the same reasons that I'm in on Xander. Um, when he is on and putting, he's one of the best players. Um, he's got a confidence, a quiet confidence about him that if he can see a few putts go in on Thursday and Friday and get his rounds going early on, um, he could be um, in contention throughout the week. Uh, Webb Simpson has been extremely good, but I just don't know if he's long enough this week. But as I mentioned, iron play is going to be extremely important, and Webb is one of the best iron players as well. Con Morikawa. Uh, the putty. He putted well last week at the WGC, uh, but 
his driving distance, he hits it just standard far. And how I said that the iron play for Webb is going to be important. It's also going to be important for Morikawa because he is one of the best uh, iron players on the tour right now, but it is imperative for him to be able to play out of the fairway. So if he can do that, he's going to have a very solid chance as well. Ricky Fowler, I got nothing. He uh, really shit the bed this past week. Hideki, he's at 40-1 to there with Ricky and Jason Day as well. Jason Day has been putting since about the memorial and the workday, some pretty solid rounds and pretty solid weeks together. He's going to be an interesting play and exciting to see. Uh, going back to Decky, he just doesn't do, he doesn't putt well enough for me to have any confidence in him. But if he can get hot with the putter and sort of, that's really his only weakness. His like stroke gains putting is like, I think it's like two something or like one, like it's very bad. It's not good whatsoever. And then DB straight by vibing Daniel Berger. I'm he's been consistently, I think, right up there with the best golfer um, since the restart has happened for the PGA. So um, then after Berger, you have Hovland. Uh, I just think him it being his real like major debut and I think Morikawa as well being their major debuts and Wolf, those three young guys they're gonna have some struggles and issues. So I guess it gets now because I'm not gonna keep going down the list. Uh but I will say Jordan Spieth has a chance to win the career Grand Slam this week with a win. He's not gonna do it, but he certainly has the chance to do it. Uh but he's not going to. Um so that I guess it's it's time for me to make a pick. I am going to go, I'm going to give you four that I really think have a chance to do something good here. And it's not like I'm going out on a crazy big limb here, but I'm going to go Justin Thomas. I'm going to go Xander Schauffele. I'm going to go Patrick Cantley. And I am going to go Tony Finau because I believe Tony Finau, I didn't get into him too much, but his driving ability hits it a fucking country mile, a Utah mile. He's from Utah. I don't know if it's country mile if that's the same for Utah, but hits it far as hell. His iron play has been pretty, pretty good going back all the way to um, the Memorial when he sort of choked it to Rom. And then his putting has been up and down. It's about time he gets that figured out. So that is, those are my four picks. If they're wrong, I apologize. It's a hundred plus man event. It's pretty hard to pick a winner um, just from four of them. So Forgive me if I am incorrect. All right. We're sitting at the minute and two mark. I told you this episode was going to be shorter than last week's, and we are going to wrap it up this week right here. We touched on everything I wanted to get to. We did a fairly deep dive into the PGA Championship, which I cannot express how excited I am for. I hope you are sharing the same excitement and anticipation I am. We covered the MLB. NFL, we got to the mail sack, did some NBA talk as well. I just want to throw it out there one more time for you listeners. Um, if you sign up for Thrive Fantasy and you use my promo code SACK, S-A-C-K, and you deposit a minimum of $20, you will receive an instant $20 bonus when you sign up. That's Thrive Fantasy, T-H-R-I-V-E, Fantasy. So, 
Thank you once again for tuning into Carson Sack, episode 70. Like, rate, review, subscribe, all that good shit on iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, wherever you are listening to this podcast. And don't be afraid to show a friend, show a family member. Um, that's how we get this to grow. We can get more sponsors, and that helps me out tremendously. But nothing helps me out more than uh, providing this podcast for you all and hearing your feedback and your all's encouragement. Thank you all very much for tuning in to episode 70 of Carson Sack Podcast. And always, as we always end here on the sack, we will be... See you.